You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. We are in our sermon series, our study of the Gospel of John. And so if you've got your Bibles, I do want to exhort you to turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 9. This morning, Lord willing, we will actually cover the whole chapter. We'll spend a little bit more time, make more emphasis in the first seven verses. It's a familiar passage talking about sight and blindness. Now, I'm fairly certain that just about all of us in this room have at least some vision. Now, you may be like I am experiencing some significant decline in your vision, but most of us can see at least somewhat. But what if you had been absolutely and totally blind and unable to see anything from birth. Now, candidly, when we see someone in our world that is completely blind and that always has been, being assisted by someone else and struggling to navigate through the world, it gives us a little bit of a sense of fear and sadness because we can sense that they are not sensing their environment in all of the ways that they could. I want to say that again, that they're not able to sense and to discern their environment in all the ways that they could. And it makes us sad. And it makes us a little bit like, whew, that makes me uncomfortable. Golly gosh, I'm at a moment thankful that though I have to wear corrective lenses, I can see. But one of the interesting things about blindness is not being able to even comprehend everyday concepts and ideas like colors. What do you mean the sky is blue? What is a sky? And what do you mean blue? You say that fire is orange and yellow and that it, it dances around. What are you talking about? What is orange? What is yellow? What is red? What is black and what is white? To someone who has never seen anything ever, now, I want you to imagine just for a moment the inability to sense your environment in that way, how that would even affect your imagination. How would that even begin to affect your dreams if you had no images whatsoever in your mind to draw from? Well, I kind of like the way Tommy Edison puts it. Let's see what Tommy says. You guys have been asking an awful lot of questions about what it's like to be blind and stuff. So today I'm going to tell you. if I can see in my dreams. And I think because I've never seen it in real life, I, my subconscious doesn't know what it'd be like to see either. So no, I don't see my dreams. I mean, the way it works for me is just the way my life occurs, right? So it's all smell, sound, taste, and touch. That's all there is. Just like your life works. I mean, if you see it in life, so obviously you've seen your dreams. You guys have been so Tommy Edison has a YouTube channel called the Tommy Edison Experience. So far as what I've seen, it's entertaining and by and large clean so far as what I have seen. I make no endorsement thereof. But he has a lot of questions that people will tweet in and ask him, what is it like to be blind? And they'll ask him, what is the hardest thing about being blind? And he'll laugh and say, hmm, never been asked that before. I guess it's probably not being able to see. <laughs> so he's got a great sense of humor about it. Um, 
It's interesting to hear what he says about it. It's fascinating that Tommy doesn't really even know what he doesn't even know. And I thought about that. That is a perfect setup for our passage that we're going to be studying this morning. And it's the reason that the apostle, the disciple John, will include it in his narrative in his gospel. So we're going to hear a familiar story about Jesus giving sight to a blind man. But of course, this story is about a whole lot more than merely an individual regaining his vision. In the context of where this story sits in John's gospel, and in light of what John is trying to convey, this story of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ is one of the most vivid demonstrations of the truth that God gives sight. And that's our big idea for the morning. God gives sight. Now, I know that you know that, and that makes perfect sense. It's a very simple three-word sentence. But I want for this passage to really impress deeply and profoundly and impactfully upon your heart that it is God that gives sight. John includes this passage in chapter 9. Now, John's entire thrust and thesis for writing this gospel is so that you will believe so that you believe that Jesus is of the same essence as God. He is God of God. He is the one sent by God to take away the sin of the world so that you will believe. And if you were John, how would you orchestrate and architect all of the information that you had at your disposal? John says, I'm not writing down even a fraction of what happened, but I'm writing it this way so that you will believe. John will record seven signs and wonders that Jesus does as a defense, as an evidence of the fact that Jesus is in fact who he says he is. Seven of them. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 9. Now, John chapter 9 fits nicely between chapter 8 and chapter 10. And you might remember that John chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 is really one long massive section. It all takes place in Jerusalem. The scenery never changes. Jesus comes up at the Feast of Tabernacles. He has said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I am the provision from God. I am what sustains existence. And then he comes to Jerusalem and he boldly proclaims at the Feast of Tabernacles, as the high priest is about to pour out the water of life, Jesus interrupts the silence and says, no, I am the water of life. I am the one who will implant the river maker, the spirit of God himself, and from you, streams of water will flow into this world. And then he goes on as they light the candles, the, the menorah, the lampstands, to commemorate God by his Shekinah glory, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the one who gives illumination, provides understanding, gives instruction, enables you to sense your environment. Because apart from me, you cannot. I am the Shekinah glory, the one that you're dancing all over the place celebrating. It's me. And then he'll go into chapter nine and he will heal a blind man. And then in chapter 10, we will hear Jesus say, with no break whatsoever in the chapters, I am the good shepherd. And so what chapter nine is, is the evidence that Jesus is at once the light of the world from chapter eight and that Jesus is the good shepherd. And chapter nine is the first little lamb. The good shepherd finds those who are lost and helps them to sense their environment the way God intended. So we're going to walk back through this. John chapter 9, I'll start reading in verse 1. In the Old Testament, 
Virtually every page of the Old Testament prepares us and points us to the coming of the Messiah. This one who would do incredible things, who would reset that which was broken, who would make all of the sad things come untrue. In the book of Isaiah alone, some 750 years before Jesus, Isaiah says that the Messiah will come and he will give sight to the blind. The Messiah will come, he will give sight to the blind. The Messiah will come, he will give sight to the blind. Yes, individually in isolated circumstances, but also in a much larger spiritual sense. So John chapter 9 Verse one, as he passed by, he's still winding down at the Feast of Tabernacles. He saw a man blind from birth. John tells us this very matter-of-factly, this person is blind from birth. Why did he tell us that? Because people who are blind from birth don't see. They do not sense their environment at all the way a normative experience occurs. He is blind from birth. Now, of course, John means that this individual man, let's call him Billy, blind Billy, is blind from birth. He's never experienced anything visually. But it's also a larger metaphor that all people are spiritually blind from birth. Please catch the metaphor that John's doing. All people by nature at birth are spiritually blind. They do not experience their environment fully. I cannot make a big enough deal about this. All people come into this world spiritually blind, not sensing their environment as they should. In fact, the Apostle Paul is going to develop this idea much further. In 1 Corinthians, he's going to say the natural, unregenerate man cannot understand spiritual things. They don't even register to him. He'll say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God of this age, the devil, Satan, the enemy, has blinded people further so that spiritual things make no sense. It is confused, it is corrupt. They do not sense their environment as they should. And this man is representative of all humanity. So chapter nine is fascinating. We are intended to see ourselves in the story, but you ain't Jesus. You ain't even the disciple. You're the blind guy who doesn't sense his environment properly. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Ah, the disciples, at least they're honest. They are going to ask the age-old question. When we encounter suffering, why? Why is this happening? Is it something that I have done? I have been in hospital rooms when I heard well-meaning people say, hey, this is probably because you have unconfessed sin. Not helpful. Not helpful. It's actually because of a metastasis of a cancer cell. Let's not try to heap guilt and shame upon pain, all right? Don't, that, that's not helpful. Why is this bad thing happening? Is it him that did it or was it his parents? There was a superstition, a legend, that a baby could actually sin in the womb. If that's the case, I would have been the chief of womb sinning, all right? That's, I mean, free time, nothing else to do. I'm gonna sin, but... That was their idea. Or that the mother somehow engaged in some kind of idolatry and God poured it out on him. The rabbis and the Talmud wrote, there can be no suffering without iniquity. In Judaism, it said, if there is suffering, it is always because of iniquity. Something, somebody did something, somebody caused this. So they ask, why? Why is this bad thing happening? Because there is a default human assumption that we don't deserve bad things. Because there is a default human assumption is that we're good. Because there is a default human assumption that we are fully baked and we can sense our environment in every way that we should. 
and Jesus is going to unwind that errant thinking. Why? Why is this happening? His disciples ask him. Well, Jesus is going to address this. And in verse 3, he says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Now, Jesus is not saying that they have a sinless nature, that they have never sinned. He's saying this is not a direct tie. This is not a cause and effect thing. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. God is taking this bad situation that is caused by sin in general because of a fallen, corrupt world, not because of a specific individual act, and he's going to superintend it. Now that, by the way, is a picture of sovereignty. I don't know what you think about when you think about God. Maybe you think of God as some crusty guy in a long white beard sitting on a throne, tossing down lightning bolts every now and then. That's too bad because that thing doesn't exist. That's called Greek mythology. It's Zeus and he's not real. No, God is a sovereign God who accomplishes his purpose perfectly and precisely on time through the fallenness of a sinful world and the bad choices of millions of people. Now, you know your God when you can do that. In a perfect environment, I can't get anything done. But God, through the bad choices of people and a sinful, fallen, broken world, accomplishes his purpose perfectly and precisely on time. That's good news. No, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 4, we, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you're a part of this now. I'm moving you from membership to ministry, Jesus essentially says. You're not just along for the ride. You are to be a part of the work that God is doing. What is the work of God? To usher people out of darkness into light, out of death into life. We have but a short time, Jesus says. We have to work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming. Now, did the disciples understand what Jesus meant there? Probably not at the time. We have the advantage and the privilege of 2,000 years later understanding, oh, Jesus is talking about his impending death at the cross. Within a matter of months, he will be dead, hanging on the cross. So while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. The amount of time is limited. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is not saying when he ascended, he ceased being the light of the world. He's saying, while I'm here, I am accessible by the Jewish people. Israel is offered her king. And the way it's phrased here in verse five is very important. Jesus essentially says, while I am here, I am Yahweh Shekinah. It is one of the most direct declarative statements of divinity and deity he can make. I am Yahweh, Shekinah. As all the old men are dancing around the lighted lampstands at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is saying, but I am the light. I am the one who helps you to see, to understand. I am Yahweh, and I am that. I am he, which helps you to sense your environment the way you were created to sense it. That's verse six. Going to verse six, something pretty not exciting happens. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. <laughs> yes, Jesus is a seventh grade boy like me, right? Like, really, Jesus, you just got, and in the, that, come on, there's bacteria in there, Jesus. Can we, clear? I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus, but he's clever, and he's always getting things done. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Uh Uh-oh, there's so much going on in John chapter nine, verse six. So much is here. 
First of all, the Jewish leaders, the authorities, the Pharisees had written 39 codes of conduct that you could not do work. And to do any of these 39 was worthy of stoning. They could kill you. Two of them were, you could not knead dough or clay. Same word, you could not knead or fashion dough or clay. And you could not anoint. On the Sabbath, Jesus goes, "Hmm, let's see, let me pick out your top two and I'm going to do them. I'm going to mold clay and I'm going to anoint on the Sabbath. Why? Because God works on the Sabbath. Jesus says, I am God. I made the Sabbath. Watch this, y'all. And he does two amazing things on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus spits in the clay, which is just because he was short of resources and didn't know what else to do. Like, anybody got any visine? No. No, there's a lot going on here. In antiquity, the spit or the saliva, just like the blood, was considered the life of a person. Perhaps you've even heard it said, hey, that's your boy. He looks just like you. He's your spit and image. We're from East Texas, so we say spit and image. It's like the image is loosened when, no, 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 spit and image. It's an antique, very old expression. Your spit and image is your life, your essence, your image. So for Jesus to spit into clay, gosh, what does that remind me of? What is that? What is that? Genesis 2, 7. When God takes the clay, the, the dirt of the earth, and he creates man. Here we're seeing God redemptively recreate man. In Genesis 2, 7, God breathes into man's nostrils. In John chapter 9, he experiences his own life into the clay and puts it on the man's eyes. There is creation, but salvation is re-creation. A new person is born. A new being comes into existence that senses his environment differently. It's not just you plus Jesus equals a little better. Ain't that nice? And then one day you go to heaven one day. Woohoo! No, 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 no. It's a new creation, a re-creation, a new earth, a new fashion. You actually sense your environment differently. And some of you are going, well, hold on. I've never sensed my indifferently. Wait, there's good news for the end. Don't leave. He spits in the clay and he puts it on the man's eyes. What I find fascinating is that he didn't say, all right, stand up, take a knee. Let me tell you about Romans 1. Let me tell you about Romans 2. Let me tell you about Romans 4. He just puts it on his eyes. Now, I'm just going to level with you. If you do that to me and we haven't had a conversation first, things are going to get weird. I'm going to sick my wife on you, all right? I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to be like, hey, he put mud in my eye. Jesus doesn't ask. He's the good shepherd. He finds his lost lambs even if they don't know they're lost. It's a wonderful verse. Now, the story is just going to keep getting funnier. I'm just going to level with you. Verse nine, or sorry, verse six. He put it on the he uh, uh, in the man's eyes with the mud. Verse seven, and he said to him, "Go and wash in the pool of Siloam," which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back saying, "There's a lot going on here." First of all, let me remind you, this dude is blind. They're up on Temple Mount. It's an elevated area. He says, go down to the Pool of Siloam. Well, that's about a half a mile, maybe a mile, down some very rugged terrain. And let me say again, Holmes is blind, okay? And now he's got like some spitty paste on his eyes, and here he goes. I mean, it doesn't matter that it's getting dark because, you know, he's blind. But go down to the southeast of the temple and wash. And then John inserts Siloam, which means scent. Oh, this is the beauty of John's inspired gospel. Why does John say this? Because 
The pool of Siloam is a pool. I know, the brilliance of this platform never ceases to amaze you. I know, it's a pool, which means the water doesn't move. It's still, it, it collects there because it comes from the spring of Gihon. Israel believed that hundreds and hundreds of years ago when the Assyrians were laying siege to Israel, that God provided sustaining water to save them. Hezekiah dug the channel and the tunnel. I've actually walked through it, it's terrifying. But these waters come and they collect and they are still in the pool of Siloam. God sent saving water and it collects in this place. And so Jesus says, I want you to go to the place that represents that which is sent by God that saves. I want you as Messiah to send you to go to Messiah and to wash in Messiah. Are you understanding? This is the most beautiful image. I am the Messiah. I'm telling you, go to Messiah and wash in Messiah. By the way, that's called gospel ministry. I'm just telling you, go wash in Messiah. He is the one sent by God. He is the collection of all the blessing, all of the saving life that God has. It's him, it's him, it's him. Go wash in him. Yeah, but, but, but what about the doctrine of the Trinity? Go wash in Messiah. And then you'll be able to understand all those wonderfully complex ideas. First, go and wash in Messiah. And I love the fact that verse seven ends as it does. It says, and he came back seeing. He went and washed. Oh, good news, he came back saying, now we're really gonna pick up speed here because the story is these first seven verses and then everything that happens in this chapter thereafter is just an explanation and a kind of a confrontation about what this actually means. So, verse eight, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? I, I want you to see this. This man can now see. This man can now sense his environment differently and as a result, he looks different to other people. When you see the world differently, other people see you differently. Please do not miss what John is saying here. This man has gone through a transformation and it is visceral and it is visible. He senses his environment differently, fully, and other people recognize a change in him. Some said it is he, others said no, but he is like him. I think he must have a twin that we didn't know about that was chained under the stairs for something, right? I don't know. It sure looks like him, but this one can see, and the one that was a beggar couldn't see. It couldn't be him now, could it? And maybe the Lord flashes some faces through your mind right now that you think, no, not him. He could never be. He could never be. Oh, we don't know what God can do. He kept saying, I'm the man, it's me, I'm blind Billy, but I'm not blind anymore, I can see. No, 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 it's, I don't have a twin, it's me, it's me. And by the way, did you all know there's a sky and it's blue? Did you know that people have ears? And that guy's ugly, I never knew. <laughs> wow, did y'all know what, I mean, have, have, have you seen this? Trees, man, they're, they're green grass. There's not a whole lot in Israel, but that little patch of grass, wow. And do you see he's waking up and sensing his environment totally differently? I am the man. It's really an emotional story for me. Verse 10, so they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed. Dun, dun, dun. That's an accusation. This man's gonna be interrogated at least four times and each time his testimony will grow more bold, more courageous, more articulate because that's the way it goes. And his opposers, 
His opponents will attack him and every time their accusations will become more ludicrous, more enraged, more insane with the things that they will say. That's interesting. The man called Jesus made mud, strike one on the Sabbath, and anointed my eyes, strike two on the Sabbath, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. The Messiah sent me to Messiah to wash in Messiah. That's pretty much what happened. Is that your story? So I went and washed and I received my sight. I went and did what he said and now I experience my environment in a completely different way. Huh, wouldn't that be fun? Verse 12, they said to him, where is he? (laughs) He was blind. Where is he? I don't know. He spit in my eye and then I took off. I don't know where he is. You remember that I don't even know what streets are. Okay, like he's figuring out, where is he? Um, I was blind. I stumbled down the street and fell in the water. And you're asking me where Jesus is. That's awesome, y'all. Like you have eyes. You tell me where he is, but they didn't know. Isn't that interesting? Verse 13, oh, this will fix it. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Dun, dun, dun. Third time and Jesus will do a work on the Sabbath because he is God, and God works on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Well, yeah, but did he reattach the ophthalmic nerve? No, 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 he told me to wash, I did what he said, and now I see. I was blind, now I see. Four different times blind Billy will say, I don't know about all that, I was blind, now I see. It's impossible to argue with a man's experience with superior doctrine. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? Ah, here it is. And there was a division among them. See, Jesus makes you decide. Even the Pharisees are going, well, hold on a second. That's pretty God-like. The other ones go, no, it can't be. He violated our rules. And they go, yeah, but he healed a blind man. That's, hmm. You cannot stay neutral on Jesus. He will not have it. Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, man, I don't want any trouble, y'all. No, that's not what he said. He said he is a prophet. He is of God. He is the Deuteronomy 18, 15, 1 that Moses said would come. It's him. Now, let me just remind you, this guy is uneducated and illiterate. He's blind. He didn't know how to read. There's no Braille back then. But God has been doing a work in this man's mind for a very long time. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind. Uh, This is awesome. You say you can see. How many fingers am I holding up? Two. Lucky. How about now? Five. Lucky. How about now? I don't believe that you were blind. No, it couldn't be you. So they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. Verse 19, and they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? How did this change come to pass? We can't explain it with our religion. That's interesting. Verse 20, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Yeah, we know blind Billy. We called him blind Billy because, you know, the whole blindness thing. Yeah. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now, why did his parents say that? Because verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, to which you are probably hearing, wait a minute, if I say something, they'll kick me out of church, I'm in. No, 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 it's not quite like that. It's not like that. If you get put out of the synagogue, that's it, you're dead. 
You are shunned by the community. I mean completely and literally. You can no longer do business. People who are in the community are forbidden from speaking to you, from making eye contact with you. If they see you on the street, they have to cross to the other side. You can't have a job. You can no longer own a home. You are dead man walking. And his parents did not want that to happen. That was most important to them was their community engagement. You would literally have to leave Israel to try and survive. And generally speaking, that did not go well for people. If you get mad and leave this church, or if you just get bored and leave this church, you can pretty much go to any other church you want. We can't say anything about it. But if you get cast out of the synagogue, you are a dead person walking. So verse 23, therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, so he's been asked before by the neighbors, by the Pharisees, now by these folks again. The second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Now, this is them getting insane. This is the Pharisees going a little bit crazy in verse 24. Give glory to God. Well, that sounds nice, but it's not. All through the Old Testament, anytime you see a leader of Israel say, give glory to God, it is an imperative command because you're about to be executed. In Joshua chapter 7, Achan has stolen from the people of Israel and he's hidden some stuff under his tent and they figure out that it's him. They lost the battle. He comes to Joshua and Joshua says, Achan, give glory to God. And then he kills him and burns his whole family. (laughs) The Pharisees are this insane. It happens again in Samuel, give glory to God and then they are executed. So they say, give glory to God, just confess and we'll put you to death nice and quick and easy. We know that this Jesus is a sinner. They're starting to lose their pinnings. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that I thought I was blind, though I was blind, now I see. This guy, he just keeps holding to his testimony because it's the most true thing about him. I don't know about all that. Here's what I know. I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? (laughs) Verse 27, some of the greatest comedy in your Bible. This guy, who's uneducated, illiterate, listen to what he says in verse 27. He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? <laughs> this dude is Captain Awesome. Blind Billy ain't playing, and this infuriates them. I've already told you. You weren't listening. Oh, I get it. You want to hear it again so that you can be his disciples too. That chaps him, but please notice he uses the word also. This man has taken a stand. Because when you realize that you were blind and now you see, I will follow the one that can do that. I will follow that kind of God. Verse 28, and they reviled. And this is strong language. They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Now remember, their biggest offense is that they keep Moses' rule book better than anybody else. But God's already told them. Jesus has already told them. John chapter 5, verse 49, you think you know Moses? You don't. You don't know Moses. You don't keep Moses. You're trying to kill me. You're lawbreakers. And then last week in chapter 8, he goes, "Mm, you think you're Jews? You're not. Oh, I know you came from Abraham, but that's because you're Ishmaelites. (laughs) That stings. Oh, and by the way, you think your father is God? He's not. Your father is the devil. (laughs) Strike three. Oh, and by the way, you think you know Moses? You don't know Moses, because if you knew Moses, you would know me. You're not of Abraham. You're not of God. You're not of Moses. Ow. Jesus is winning friends and influencing people here. 
We know that he spoken to Moses, but if for this man, we don't know where it comes from. The man answered, verse 30. This is brilliant. This is such genius. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. You Pharisees, man, you guys are so smart. You're so well-read. You're so well-educated. You smell so nice and pretty, and you've never done anything for me. Your religion has been pointless to my life. It's never had a single impact. By the way, what do you Pharisees do all day? This man opened my eyes and you don't even know where he's from? What do you guys do all day? Yes, I get that question every, wait a minute, you work in a coffee shop? What do you do all day? I go, cinnamon rolls, right? (laughs) What do you do all day, Pharisees? This man opened my eyes and you don't know where he's from? Hmm, maybe you guys aren't what you think you are. Well, that just about tears it. Verse 31, we know, he continues, that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Blind Billy just got theological on the Pharisees. You see, when God gives you sight, when God allows you to sense your environment in a whole new vibrant way, suddenly you are illumined to things you didn't even know were possible. This man is preaching doctrine now back to the Pharisees because he's now sensing his environment in a whole different way. We're seeing the progression of a believer who stands with Jesus. It's a beautiful story. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And then you just sort of get the idea that he goes, Blink, blink, blink. He just looks at him and blinks and be like, two, four, three, one. If you weren't from God, he couldn't have done this. And then he starts saying, hey, that's a nice uh, blue thing. Did you know that was blue? Yeah, I do too. If he was not from God, he could not have done this, but look at my eyes. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. They accuse him of sinning in the womb. He's that detestable. They're losing their minds in fury. You were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. Death sentence. You are out from our midst. You're not worthy of us. But good news, there is verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast them out and he said, not from me. Oh, you may be out of their little building there, but I have not cast you out. I am the good shepherd. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, Brian Billy answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Because he hasn't seen him yet. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Verse 38 is the linchpin. It is the whole reason chapter 9 is in your Bible. John's thrust and theme and thesis is so that you will believe. And here is the time we see this is what it looks like. John chapter 9, verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He didn't say, thank you, and lower his head. He proskuneo, he fell down and claimed this man as God, which was a death sentence. No other Jewish man would would stand there and worship another Jewish man standing. That is asinine. You don't worship a man unless you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, who is a man. Oh, he's God, but he's also man. We see a time in Revelation when John encounters an angel, and John face plants, and the angel goes, whoa, 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 I'm an angel. Don't ever worship me. Worship God alone. 
Cornelius, a Roman centurion, falls down before Peter in Acts 10 and worships. Peter goes, whoa, 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 don't ever do that again. I'm a man. Don't worship men unless it's Jesus. And this man worships Jesus, and that's a key to this whole passage, and Jesus receives it. Jesus does not go, okay, this is awkward. You're kind of making a fool of yourself. Jesus receives the worship because he is God and he is worthy. John 9, 38, wonderful verse. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. I came to bring sight to those who recognize they are blind. In other words, that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Those who think they can experience their world, sense their world properly, will be confirmed in that error. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things as he was saying to blind Billy. They overheard him and they said, are we also blind? Jesus' answer might surprise you. He said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In other words, you refuse to accept that you are not sensing your environment as you should be. You are learned, you are wealthy, you are well experienced. And so because you say I can see a little bit, you're blind. And thus shall you stay. It's a very poignant passage. So as briefly as I can, I want to serve up a batch of abiding principles. I could literally give 30 abiding principles from this passage, and I did, but I cut 25 of them loose. So I'm going to give you these five uh, as fast as I can, just because I think these are so powerful. I hope and pray that you will file them away, that God will use them to continue to encourage you throughout your days and weeks and life. First one goes like this. There's no such thing as karma. There's no such thing as karma. I get it. I know, of course, there's a universal axiom of cause and effect, but Jesus obliterates that in the first couple verses of this passage. Now, it's not what this passage is primarily and principally about, but it is supportive of this passage. There's a way that seems right unto a man, and that way is karma. We've all heard it. What goes around comes around. Again, the Jewish Talmud says, no suffering apart from iniquity. If there is suffering, something caused it. 2,000 years before Jesus, Job's friends come to him and they say, mm, Job, this is terrible. By the way, you smell terrible, but this is happening because of some sin. Because surely you did something to make this happen. You're a good person. A bad thing has happened. You caused it. And do you remember? Job actually has to make sacrifice to God on their behalf because their estimation is so grievous and in error. Job has to make sacrifice for them. The notion of karma is sin because Jesus obliterates the spinning wheel. Jesus himself comes into this sin-soaked world and he obliterates what we human beings assume is wrong with the world and what the solution we think is. Humanity on the whole, and you see this, you watch the news, we recognize that there is wrong in the world, and so the answer must certainly be for all of us to try harder, to do and be better, so that we will ultimately eradicate evil in our midst, and certainly over time, we will solve the problem of evil. <laughs> no. But Jesus completely undoes that errant thinking. This bad thing happened to this man, and he was born blind. It is a result of sin in general because of a fallen world, but it is not because something that has gone around and is now coming back around. Jesus alone is the healing for all of the suffering that sin produces, which leads me to abiding principle number two. 
God takes the brokenness of this world and uses it for his glory and our good. Now that takes a lot of understanding in advance to decide in advance to see the world through this truth. It's called faith. We trust that this bad thing, God can and will use it. It's not that everything happens for a reason. Everything happens because it happened. And God is so good that he can and will use it for his glory and for our good. No, God did not cause that per se, but he can superintend it. Jacob tells his brothers, you threw me in a pit. That wasn't my favorite, but what you intended for evil, God superintended for good. And I happen to be the one through whom God did this good thing, even though it was bad and hard on me, and sometimes that happens in this world. That's what Jesus says about the, bland, about the blind man. Sometimes God allows bad things to happen so that grace may abound. So we get the privilege of, of hearing this truth and deciding in advance how we will react to the bad things that come across our paths. And never try to interpret God in light of our circumstances. Maybe, just maybe, there are some bad things happening in your lives. I don't want that per se, but perhaps God is going to use that bad thing to demonstrate his goodness and glory and grace to somebody else because God loves them just as much as he loves you. Third abiding, abiding principle. The deepest blindness is blindness to your blindness. I just felt like I hadn't said blindness often enough today, so I wanted to say it three more times. The deepest blindness is blindness to your blindness. Thinking that you can see and being sure that you're right is a deadly form of blindness. We see it in the passage today, embodied in the Pharisees. They were convinced that because of their learning and their experience that they could see, but they could not. See, I remember our friend Tommy Edison at the beginning? He would have absolutely no concept that images even existed had someone not explained it to him. And if Tommy Edison denied that he was blind, said, no, I'm not, how tragic would it be, especially if there was a cure available to him? He said, but I'm not blind. I don't need any cure. Wouldn't that be madness? Wouldn't that be insanity? And so maybe you're not a Pharisee, but maybe you think you have spiritual sight just because you've sat in a church all your life. But church doesn't give you sight. God gives sight. God gives sight. Perhaps for some of you this morning is just so that you will finally come to terms with the fact that you are actually spiritually blind. You don't see the world through God's eyes and much of what you encounter doesn't make sense to you and you're pretty much just frustrated with life and the people that you encounter will have good news. God gives sight. Abiding principle number four, we were made to see. God did not intend for us to walk through our world not sensing our environment properly. We were made to see. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden and they experienced their world the way God did. Hear that. They experienced, they sensed their environment the same way that God did. But then sin entered in and fellowship and relationship was fractured. And since then there's been a form of spiritual blindness where we simply can't see and sense our environment the way we are intended to. But God gives sight. And when we're given sight, suddenly things that we didn't understand become clear. Man, that relationship that was forced with my spouse, suddenly I begin to understand I've been bitter and resentful toward her, but now I recognize, now I see, man, that she's actually dealing with a tremendous amount of pain and guilt and sorrow and shame. And rather than be resentful to her, I am heartbroken for her. Did she change? No my ability to sense my environment changed. Maybe you've got that situation with a coworker or with a parent and you begin to realize, 
man, I'm just seeing these people differently. I'm now beginning to see there's a whole lot more to the story than just my world. And people begin to look at you and go, something's different about you. You, you've, you, you're acting differently. You're, you're saying different things. You're not putting all that stuff on Facebook anymore. Praise God. I mean, what is the deal? You seem different. Do you have a twin? No, it's me. It's me, do you see? Because I do. I didn't. Now I do. We were made to see. Maybe you're experiencing that with your job, maybe with your finances, maybe with your health, maybe with your family. I don't know. But when you are given by grace, the capacity to rightly sense your environment, to see, then you are alive as you are intended to be. Fifth abiding principle, and this is big, so stick with me for just one more moment. It goes like this. Worshiping the right thing is the only cure for spiritual blindness. Worshiping the right thing is the only cure for spiritual blindness. It's the ultimate healing and receiving of spiritual sight. It is a recognition that my spiritual blindness is because I am by nature inclined to worship every other wrong thing. Everything else, namely anything other than God. If you've allowed any part of your life or all of your life to revolve around an aspect of your life, maybe your life is all about your job, then you are worshiping the wrong thing and you are experiencing a spiritual blindness because you see everything through that lens. Maybe your whole life revolves around your family and your kids and you see everything in your world. You sense your environment through the fact that they are the most important thing and you, in a sense, worship that. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it is your career. Maybe it's your abilities. Maybe it's your looks. Maybe it's your capacity to to achieve things. If you are spiritually blind, it is because you are worshiping the wrong thing. There's only one thing in the cosmos, sturdy and strong and worth your worship, and it is God himself. That's what this picture is showing us. These Pharisees were worshipers, all right. Oh, and they were authentic and they were sincere, and they were wrong and they were blind. Just look to Jesus, worship him, and see that God gives sight. See, all of us... (laughs) All of us, every single one of us comes into this world spiritually blind, not seeing things through God's eyes. But do you know, there was one who came, this Jesus, and he sensed his environment perfectly. Every nanosecond of his life on the planet, he sensed his environment perfectly. He saw the world through God's eyes every moment of his life. And yet, this Jesus goes to the cross And he himself is plunged in darkness, which is why he will cry out, not my father, my father, but my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? I'm losing my capacity to sense my environment. The whole thing is tearing apart and the veil is torn and the sky goes black because the maker of the world cannot see. So that you and I might see. Now this is Jesus who gave up his sight his harmony, his fellowship, his relationship with the Father so that you and I could have it for all eternity. Now maybe you're here this morning and you think this religion is about doing some stuff, following some rules and trying to be good so that bad things don't happen to you. Not here. This is about a God who gives sight and I invite you to believe against all other understanding that you believe that he wants you to sense your environment and to see in a way that you never have. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been a believer for a very long time, but the things of this earth have grown vividly bright and the face of Jesus is dim. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
look full in his wonderful face. And then the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. They should really write a song about that. And then you will sense your environment the way you were created to. And then you will be a light to the rest of our world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. We pray, God, that you would continue to speak by your word, by your spirit among your people, and that we would sense our environment the way you intend us to. Because you, God, are the God that gives sight. So, Father, I do pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not see, would you, <laughs> would you reveal their blindness? I know, it, I know it's hard. But perhaps they've been in church a very long time and have never sensed their world properly. Would you move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus? And for the rest of us, Father, maybe we're just tired. Maybe we're frustrated that bad things keep happening. Would you help us to see our world through your eyes, to sense our environment the way you do? God, we know that you can and that that is your plan, so have your way. I pray that you will do exactly as I have asked or even better because you're gooder than I think. So God, I pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.